2 Timothy 2, we're going to jump right in. Uh, If I was going to give this chapter of the book a title, I would call it Depictions of Discipleship. Because throughout this chapter, Paul is going to use language, colorful language, graphic descriptions of what a disciple truly looks like, and also what a heretic looks like. He's painting the graphic picture because as we've been talking about, he's at the end. You know, he's days, weeks maybe, away from his departure from this earth to go home and be with Jesus. He knows this. He has a great concern for the church. The church is not in good shape as we might assume. Struggling, difficult churches even turning away from the truth itself. People already being drawn off and Paul sees it coming and sees it happening and begins to call on pastors like Titus and of course Timothy here and some others to hold fast, teach the truth, walk as disciples of Jesus Christ. See, that's the thing. It's not about walking how we want to walk. We've become disciples. If we are truly followers of His, then it's what He wants. That's why I paused for a moment there and talked about Jerusalem and Israel. That's God's determination. You know, that's not my opinion. My opinion does not matter. The Pope came out today opposed to the Trump administration calling Jerusalem the capital of Israel. The Pope was opposed to it. You know, this needs to be the international city. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Pope, but this is God's city because he claimed it and he declared it. And as a disciple of his, all I have to do is look at what he says and say, I agree with that. I will go with him. You know, whatever my opinion is. And trust me, over the years, I've had my own opinion changed many, many times. Things that I grew up with and believed and held dear that once I discovered what the truth was in Scripture, not that I was raised on lies, I wasn't. But I was raised with different perspectives and I I assumed a lot of things that my parents never even told me. But as I began to study God's Word, I realized, wow, that's that's not right. Well, that's incorrect. Well, that's not the... That's not God's approach at all. And so we learn from Him, we are His disciples. Well, with that in mind, verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And before we go anywhere else, I remind you, a disciple of, grace, a disciple of Jesus is a person of grace. We must live by grace. We must learn what it means to extend grace to one another. To receive His grace. His forgiveness. Grace is not license to sin. Grace is not do whatever you want. You know, that law and righteousness and and God's Word doesn't matter. It's just the opposite. But grace is what we have learned from Jesus. And if we're going to follow Him, first and foremost, we ought to be a people of grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then He says this, The things which you have heard from Me in the presence of many witnesses... You know, Timothy, you've heard this, our entire ministry together. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, based on all the evidence before us, we can very easily assume that the spiritual gift that Paul told Timothy to kindle afresh in chapter 1 was the gift of teaching. But that's Timothy's gift. There are other gifts. That's a vital one. And it's the, it's the gift that truly permeates this entire letter. A concern for right teaching, sound teaching, biblical teaching. We understand that that was Timothy's gift, but Paul makes this comment. He says, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You teach them so they can teach others. 
Which is why now, 2,000 years later, we are still in the Word of God because I was taught by faithful ones who were taught by faithful ones before them, who were taught by faithful ones before them. And we can trace it all the way back to Paul. We can trace it all the way back to Jesus. We can go back further than that. We can go all the way back to Moses, Job, those who God used to pen His, His Word. Faithful people who continue to teach. And so we take up that same mantle. We pick it up. We go. The word entrust here is interesting. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust is paratithomai. And it's a great word to really get your teeth into. Paratithomai means to set before, as in to set a table. It's a Greek word that simply means describing the setting of food on a table. Set these before. Set this like setting the dinner table and, and saying it's supper time. Set this out before others so they can feed on it, be nourished by it, and then they can go and do the same thing. You set this table that they might set other tables. Entrust this to them that they might entrust it to others. That's the way the Word of God always works. Isaiah 55, verse 10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. And Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Entrust this. Feed this. Set the table with this for others who will then go and do the same. It doesn't, however, take a spiritual gift to set the table. Yes, this is Timothy's gift. Yes, he's a pastor-teacher in Ephesus. And yes, he is to teach the Word to others also. But Paul doesn't say, what I want you to do is teach the Word to teachers. Take your gift and only share it with those who have that gift. He says to faithful people, to faithful men, anthropos, so ladies, you're included in that. (coughs) Teach this to faithful anthropos, faithful people. And there's no designation as to whether or not the person has the gift or the ability or or the know-how to teach. That doesn't matter. I think we make too much of a distinction in the church between the teachers and the lay people. That's a Catholic thing. We were talking about in staff meeting this morning. There, there are no priests and lay people in this fellowship. There's only fellowship. Yes, I have a role of being a teaching pastor, but that does not take away one iota from your responsibility to set the table in your home. Set the table with friends and family. Set the table in a small group. Teach others what you've been taught. A lot of people don't know this, but when we first started, and this was only 14 years ago, much of my teaching, I was just listening to other people. To make sure that my head was in the right place. You know, you learn over time and you, and you receive from the Lord over time, but entrust what you've heard. Teach others. You can take, you can download stuff. Straight out, if you trust me, you can take, take it right off of our website. If you don't trust me, go to John Corson or Chuck Smith or someone. We'll give you a list of trusting, you know, Bible teachers. Go listen to them. Memorize what they say and teach someone else. Or better yet, just open the Bible. Just open the Bible and read it and let the Bible be the food that it is. Teaching of the Word is an everyman invitation to serve up the Gospel and keep the food on the table. David said, and David was not a teaching pastor, he was a king. He was a warrior, he was a fighter. 
And he was a shepherd of Israel. But he said in Psalm 40 verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness, that is your grace and your truth, from the great congregation. David understood what we ought to as disciples of Jesus understand. We just can't keep quiet. We can't help but entrust to others what has been entrusted to us to be teachers, whether we have the gift of teaching or not. A disciple of Jesus Christ, here's the first picture I'll give you tonight, is a food server. It's what we do. We serve up the food of the gospel. A food server. Who will do that? Who among us will be faithful to the serving of this food? Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? That word is doulos. Remember that. Keep that in mind. Doulos is the lowest form of, of servant in the culture. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Doing what? Setting the table. Giving people their food at the proper time, and the food is the Word. Disciples are food servers. We're stewards. You know, maitre d's, if you will. We're waiters and waitresses of the Word. I like that. We serve the Word of God. And by the way, it's a highly, highly honored work. Because Psalm 138 verse 2 tells us you have magnified your Word according to or even above all your name. That's how valuable it is to God. He aligns His Word with His very name. Now, Paul gives three more obvious uh, word pictures of disciples. Along with food servers here, he, he comes to what we would call the focused soldier. Verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Disciples assume hardship. He begins with that uh, among this list going straight to the soldier. A soldier knows... If you sign up, you know you may end up in combat. You know you may have hard days ahead. It's not a meal ticket to a free college education. There's going to be something to pay here. A service to render. Those of you who have been in the military, you completely understand this, and probably better than I do, but to be a focused soldier means you will be maligned one way or another. You will face difficulty. Oftentimes people don't want to eat what's set before them or they'll fight against the very rescue for which the soldier is sent. And so he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. He says, verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Soldier's focused. Soldier is, is resolute. He's dedicated And again, in combat, that can mean the difference between life and death. Focus. Soldier in combat is not looking home and worried about paying the bills. He's got to trust his wife or or her husband to do that. Soldier in combat is not thinking about where the kid's lunch is made today. No, he is focused. She must be focused. Otherwise, the threat becomes greater. As... Disciples of Jesus, like focused soldiers, we are to carry out His orders, not our desires. And I hope you struggle with that. I do sometimes. 
There are things I want, and I have to sit back and go, wait, is that what I want, or is that what He wants? Is that my desire, or His? And if there's conflict, guess whose desire is right? (laughs) Not mine. Not yours, but His. But here's the thing. We're told, Paul says, that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Are you currently entangled? The entanglements of everyday life will take us off our game. They remove us from our focus. The devil loves this. If he can entangle us in petty things, he will. And he loves to play off emotion. And he loves to mess with us, especially in relationships. This peddler of pettiness is especially adept at drawing people or luring people into petty disputes. That's what the devil loves to do. I've been in plenty in my life. And I suspect so have you. Proverbs 18.19 tells us a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. And when we get entangled into disputes and dissension and divisions, we lose focus as soldiers. Everyday life here, by the way, is common life. In fact, the word is just whole bios. It's just the life. Entangled in the life. And we get entangled in that when, when we lose the grace that was commanded in verse 1. Be strong in the grace. Don't get entangled in the things that entangle so many people. That right now entangle and embroil our political system, our entertainment system, our journalistic system. I mean, all this, what a mess we're watching happen in the world around us. Is this the way of the church? No, of course not. Sadly, we see it happen in churches. But those entanglements will take you off focus. Now think about the two sisters that we met in Philippians 4, 2, and 3. Euodia and Suntuke. These were fellow workers with Paul. And he, he regards them as such. You worked alongside. We worked together for the gospel, he says. You need to get along, sisters. Why is it a big deal? Because it takes them off their game. While, while they're arguing, the gospel is not being presented. And so we've got to... Deal with these things. These sisters in the struggle were entangled in their own struggle. Now, and, and Paul says, live in harmony. And you know what he said next? Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice. Which I think is the greatest remedy to resentment in the Bible. If you're in a resentful relationship. You see, you can't sit just one row down from the offender or the offendee. And rejoice. You just can't do it. Gloria. You cannot worship God and sit with an offender or an offendee. And so what does Jesus say? If you're presenting your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Why? Because disciples are to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I've shared with you before, I love that Jesus says, if you remember your brother has something against you. It doesn't even matter if you have something against your brother. It doesn't matter if you're upset with him. You may not be. But you know they have a problem with you. And Jesus says, your responsibility to go make it right. 
Go fix it. Because until you do, your worship's not, it's just going to fall flat. Your offering isn't going to be acceptable. It's not that God's going to go, well, I, re- I reject you. It's that you're not giving it with the right heart because your heart right now is, is torn between loving God and not loving this person. Entanglements. Entanglements. And you know what? Even if you can't go make it right for their sake or even for your own sake, do it for the one who Paul says there at the end of verse 4, who enlisted him as a soldier. We have enlistment papers. We have been enlisted by Jesus. He is the one who enlisted us into this whole thing, who drew us in as disciples. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. See, that's the key. Rejoice in the Lord always. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you cannot help but seek restoration in every situation. Because that's what Jesus does. So the focused soldier, verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 5, skip to verse there. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, so the food server was the first picture of a disciple. The focused soldier, now number three, the fair-minded athlete. The fair-minded athlete. Um, anybody see the Rob Gronkowski play from this last weekend? A couple of you saw it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, tight end from the New England Patriots was suspended for body-slamming Buffalo Bills defensive player Tredavious White after the play was over. White comes in, intercepts a pass, lands face down on the ground, and before he can even get up, Rob Gronkowski of the New England Patriots jumps and body-slams him down onto the ground. They had to take White off the field and check him for a concussion because of the body-slam. It was so unsportsmanlike, and of course... Gronkowski has been suspended for one game. Oh, no. And I I remember when I saw that Cheryl sticker on the back of our van that says, I root for the Seahawks and anyone playing against the Patriots. So I like that. (laughs) The The rules of athletic competition matter. And the athlete who violates that rule is booted or suspended because if you don't have the rules, you don't have the game. Take away the rules and you you can't play effectively. And Paul says to you and to me, disciples of Jesus, you need to be fair-minded athletes. That is, play by the rules. God does. God does not violate His law. God does not violate His standards, His, His righteousness. He plays by His own rules and He calls us to do the same. God will never, ever use sin or wrongdoing to advance His cause. He won't do it. He always plays by the rules. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, and only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may win. And that implies fairness. That implies by the rules. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, not body slamming. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Again, God never uses evil things to accomplish His purposes. Now, the devil will do evil things and God will take hold of those and will turn them around for what's good and right. 
But He stands on His own righteousness. He is righteousness. He is truth. And He never violates that. And if you think He has, or if you say, well, what about this situation or that, I would caution you that you probably don't understand it fully. Because once we really look into why God does what He does and how He works in different situations, He always plays by the rules because the rules are the righteousness of God. Now, as disciples... How in the world do we live to that standard? I get that God is righteous and therefore always lives by the rules and plays by the rules and does righteous things. But me? I can say I know what the rules are, but didn't the law prove to us that we can't keep the law? Don't we know by now that the law was added so sin would increase? And of course, wherever there's law, we find loopholes and we just try to get around it. What do we do when I'm not righteous? Oh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So fair-minded athletes, play by the rules. Verse 6, the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Number 4, the faithful farmer. Fair-minded athlete, the focused soldier, food server. Number 4, the faithful farmer. Great graphic word pictures to help us understand how we are to be as disciples. The faithful farmer knows that a good harvest means, as Paul says here, hard work. The faithful farmer is by nature a hard working farmer, puts himself into the field. Now, Proverbs 20 verse 4 says the opposite. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and he has nothing. But the farmer... The hard-working farmer? Completely different thing. He ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. I like that. Now, before I explain that any further, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. What was Jesus saying? Ask me. The Lord of the harvest is Jesus himself. Ask me to send out the workers and the best example of the worker in the harvest is the Lord of the harvest turn in your Bibles keep a finger there and go back to Isaiah chapter 28 Isaiah 28 where the prophet by the inspiration of the spirit of Christ begins to give a a fuller picture of this faithful farmer concept but applying it directly to God himself and how God functions as a farmer Isaiah chapter 28, verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rows and barley in its place and rye within its area. For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever, because the wheel of his cart and his horses would eventually damage it He does not thresh it longer. 
This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. What is Isaiah saying here? God knows how to work the land. Now, part of the implication here to Israel, if we're drawing back and looking at the historicity of this, is Isaiah is saying, God is not going to forever harrow you. God's not going to thresh you, Israel. He's, He's not just beating up on you. The reality is God knows how to plant. And he knows how to thresh, and he knows how to to harvest. He knows how to do it all, and he does it properly and in the right time. He understands how to work for both the current harvest and the coming harvest. A good farmer understands that. You don't blow it all on on the current harvest and then ruin the land for the next year. You have to let the land lie fallow sometimes. You see this throughout the Skagit Valley where, where there will be pumpkins one, one fall and the next fall is just complete dirt. Well, they're letting the land rest because the land functions better that way. So it is with the Lord. He works both for the current and the coming harvest. He never overthreshes. He, he doesn't crush the seed or spoil the soil. And that's our example. And so in discipleship, that's how we are to act. Hosea the prophet, chapter 10, verse 12, said, Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you, and He has come. When Hosea said that, Jesus had not yet come, but He has now to rain righteousness on us. Again, we have become the righteousness of God in Him, right? So God's the example of that farmer. Back in 2 Timothy 2, verse 6, the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. This is marvelous. What does that mean? Now, some pastors might say, well, that's my paycheck. You can make a case, and and I have, and I'm comfortable with it, that, that pastors can be paid, and there are other places in the Bible that talk about it. This is not one of them. I do not believe here that Paul is referring to salary when he says a hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. No, it's not an easy paycheck. It's an eschatological reward that he's talking about. And what's so marvelous about being the worker in the harvest is we receive the reward of the harvest. We are the first to share the crops, to receive our share. The word receive our share is metalambano. Metalambano simply means to partake in. We go out, we work the fields, we bring in the harvest, and we get to feast. And we get to enjoy, and by the way, we're right back at the table. That now the Lord has set before us of the harvesting He's called us to be involved with, and we get to partake in the joy. And what is that joy? Every life saved. Every life saved. I can tell you, and many of you know this, there is no greater joy in the Christian life outside of knowing the presence of God. There is no greater joy than seeing someone else come into that presence. Than being used by God to bring someone to that presence. And and 99.999% of the time, when God uses you to bring someone to Him, you're surprised that you have been used. You're shocked that you were the one that said the thing that needed to be said, so that because usually it's just this someone waters, someone else plants, God causes the growth, Paul said. But we get to be not only involved in the work, but in the pleasure of receiving those who come in from the harvest. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? You are our glory. You are our joy. 
Those who were saved by the ministry of Paul, the teaching of Paul, a crown encircling him in heaven. Of people who are saying, Paul, thanks for saying that because that's the thing that God used to click in my heart. The faithful farmer. Hardworking. And then in verse 7, after these word pictures, Paul says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Period. This is the first time in the letter Paul has paused to take a breath. If you were just reading the letter through, there's really nowhere else in all of chapter 1 and 2 up through verse 7 where you really have a place to stop because he's just rolling on from one thought to the next to the next to the next. And finally he stops and says, okay, now consider what I say. If this was a psalm, he would say, Selah, pause, hold it a minute. Think about what I have been saying to you, Timothy. Stewards, soldiers, athletes, farmers... They all keep one thing before them. With all of these, one thing is primary. For the food servant, it's the pleasure of the dining experience. For the focused soldier, it's peace. Am I right, soldiers, that that's what you fight for ultimately? Is peace. For the fair-minded athlete, it's the prize. For the faithful farmer, it's the produce. Pause and think about what I've just shared, the pictures that are drawn for you, what the end result is. Consider what I say. Now, you might say, okay, so Rick, is that what Paul wants Timothy to consider? Possibly. I'm not sure. I think it sounded good. But he says, note this, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And this is one of the marvels of Scripture to me. That there is but one interpretation, several applications. And on any given time we are in the Word together, while we give one interpretation of what the Lord is saying, yet doesn't it affect us all differently? Doesn't it apply uniquely to our situation or our life to the point where you think, whoa, someone told him what was going on in my life this week. Which is not true. I don't know what's going on. I barely know what's going on in my life. But the Lord knows, and so He makes these marvelous spiritual applications. Paul is not just saying, pause for consideration. He's saying, wait for revelation. At this point, Timothy, if there's anything I've said that you're misunderstanding, the Lord's going to reveal it. So hang on a second. Maybe even roll up the scroll. Hold off on the rest of the letter. Pray before you continue forward. I think that's wise when we study, by the way. And maybe we study for a bit and then pause and, and really... Think about what have we just read? What has the Bible just said? You know, the best commentary, you all know this, on the Bible is the Bible itself. But the best commentarian is Jesus. This is his book. John writes in 1 John 2.27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but just as His anointing teaches you all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in Him. You have a teacher, and His name is Jesus. So you read and you hear and you think, okay, wow, how can I be like Timothy, someone who entrusts things like this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also in verse 2? Well, the Lord will reveal it to you. And the Lord will, by the anointing of His Spirit, tell you what to tell others. That's how it works. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. 
risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. I like how Paul calls it my gospel. He owns this. Do you? Do you refer to this as the gospel or my gospel? Let me tell you my gospel. It's my good news. It's the best news I've ever been given. So it really is mine. And we share it and we tell it. My gospel, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen, so they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And then Paul breaks into what we think was an ancient hymn, a first century hymn in the church. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's meter and rhyme to that. And so we think, perhaps this was an early hymn that they sang in the church. This whole section, verse 8 through 13, I'm saving for Sunday morning. So we're going to come back to it. Feel free to think about it and and study through it and say law in it for the next few days if you'd like. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We can imagine there, accurately handling the word, we can imagine a practiced swordsman, you know. We think of the sword of the word and accurately handling it with with precision and preparation and accuracy. We hold this thing. We wield this thing. The sword of the word. The opposite, which we can compare to verse 14, those who wrangle about words would be swinging the sword wildly, chopping off ears right and left like Peter in Gethsemane. You know that that story of... Peter chopping off the servant of the high priest's ear is in all four Gospels. Can you imagine Peter every time it's written down again going, why? Why? And of course the other Gospel writers going, we've got to include that one. Why is it in there four times? I mean, something as bizarre as that. I mean, it's not really pertinent. You know, yeah, Luke's the only one that tells us Jesus picks the ear up off the ground, puts it back on the guy's head, and instantly heals him. Love that medical perspective, Luke. Thank you for that. The other guys don't mention that aspect of it, but why is this in here? Listen, I think perhaps we learned something, and that is that mishandling a sword like mishandling the word leads to the ruin of the hearers. It ruins your ears. It chops off your ears such that you can't hear. And so if we mishandle this sword, this word, we're chopping off ears in the garden. We're we're destroying the ability of people to hear the truth of God. This is a serious statement. Verses 14 and 15. In fact, Paul calls it solemn. In the presence of God. Man, he just draws this indelible line between angry wrangling... And accurate handling. And don't we see a clear distinction in the world today? Angry wrangling, that's striving and arguing and disputing. I I was talking with a couple sisters earlier about, you know, it's, it's amazing the moral outrage that we see happening right now. 
among politicians and among Hollywood elite and among journalists, the moral outrage. And my thought about this is how can you be morally outraged when you have no morals? What are you basing your outrage on? I heard in a commentary this evening, uh, earlier on, someone was saying, well, we're in a different time now. You know, because of the time that we're in, that's why we're outraged, and that's why we weren't outraged you know, 20 years ago when these same, same things were going on. <laughs> oh, I get it. So, so the time determines our morality. No. We have a morality based on the grounded principles of the Word of God. I didn't make this stuff up, but I can go back to it again and again, and I can say, I am outraged by this. Why? Because God is. Because His Word declares it. And Paul says, you know, this whole attitude in the world, it was happening 2,000 years ago. This is not new. Angry wrangling. Oh man, angry wrangling causes people to lose their hearing. It's completely useless. It's human opinion. Versus the accurate handling of the word of truth. Accurate handling. The word accurate there in the Greek means cutting a straight path. You know, whether you're blazing a trail through a forest or or, or cutting a path through an ocean as in a vessel sailing. It's cutting a, a clear and straight path. And James will define the difference for us. When we get to the book of James, which is not long off, Lord willing, he starts with the wrangling that leads to ruin. He starts with the sword swinging that cuts off ears. He says this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly, natural, demonic. James 3.15 Because where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's disorder and every evil thing. Wrangling with words. This is earthly wisdom. This jockeying for position and control. The incessant power struggle of humanity. That's wrangling with words. That's just trying to get yourself in a better place than you were before. It has nothing to do with truth or morality or values or principles. It's just whatever works for you in the moment. That's angry, angry wrangling. And the saddest thing about that and about what we see going on in our culture and in our media so often, is that it is so full of fear. The angry wrangling that that keeps the focus on someone else because I know if the focus turns on me, I'm in trouble. So i got to keep it out there all the time, always talking about someone else's issues, this party or that person or that one over there. It's their stuff, not mine. You know, don't look at me. And there's so much fear in it. Fear of being on the wrong side. Fear of exposure. Fear of looking weak. And Paul says, there is no such fear with this word. Accurately handling the word of truth. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. James says this about the attitude of the word. This is wisdom from above. It's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. James 3.17 How can anyone be without hypocrisy? There's only one way I know of when you live by this word. Because this word is without hypocrisy. This word is wisdom that is flawless and perfect. The more I live by this word, the less hypocritical I am. The more I can say, hey, I may not measure up, but I believe this, and I live by this. By the way, when when Paul says we're a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, 
Remember, four times in this letter he refers to being ashamed, or not being ashamed. Four times. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. And then here this fourth time in verse 15, the workman does not need to be ashamed who accurately handles the word of truth. I would call this depiction, I think this is number five in our list if I'm keeping track right, the fastidious workman. Fastidious. Well, it's meticulous. I had to look it up myself. The meticulous workman, the fastidious workman, why that word? Because again, listen, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, accurately handling the word of truth, because the one who accurately handles the word of truth will not be ashamed. This word won't steer you wrong. Stand by the word of God. Study it to show yourself approved. As Peter says, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We have this word. My parents did something for me that I have recently thanked them for again. December 25th, 1974, they handed me my first Real calfskin leather Bible. I still have it. It's in my office. A little RSV version of the Bible. And they gave it to me, and it was Christmas morning. And oh, and unwrapped it. And, and of course, quickly set it aside because I also got the Arctic G.I. Joe set with Abominable Snowman. So, like, how do the two compare? Little did they know that. Here I am all these years later, and the only gift I still have from that Christmas is that Bible. And it has changed my life. As it has changed so many of your lives. Well, maybe not that particular Bible, but you know what I'm saying. The Word of God. It's changed us. It continues to change us. But you know what? I had to diligently learn how to rightly handle that Word. At first, as a kid, I just carried it to church because it was cool. Yeah, mine was leather, not like that flimsy paperback thing you got there, dude. And, and I would try to open it and try to read it, but it was honestly overwhelming for a 10-year-old. By the way, that's interesting. 1974, that was the year I gave my life to Jesus. I just realized that. Same year they handed me the Bible, and, and, and it just things started to happen, though. It, slowly, I, I carried it, and every now and then I actually would refer to it. Or I'd hear a verse, and I'd try to look it up, see if I could find it. But I carried that thing around with me for 10 years before I replaced it with an NIV version that I, that I ended up taking off to college and using there. It had such an impact on me, though I wasn't fully reading it, I saw the value of it. I saw other people around me at church carrying these things. There was something special about this. Something unique, different than any other book that I had in school, books that I would jam into a backpack that would come and go, but not this one. Accurately handling the word of truth. That's so vital. It's so vital that we be fastidious. I'm not talking about being legalistic. It's completely different. Being legalistic is trying to shore up your own principles using the Bible to do so. 
But actually being meticulous with God's Word to understand what He has to say and to live by that is vital to our faith. Because for those who mishandle the Word, shame is not the only danger. Ears, again, get cut off. Others lose the ability to hear because of a word mishandled. Look at verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Paul now gives two very graphic depictions of the opposite of disciples, that is the mishandlers, or we might just call them the heretics. Hymenaeus and Philetus. He already called out Hymie in the last letter. But now he adds Philetus. You know, early on he, he, he mentioned two other guys, uh, uh, Fugelus and Hermogenus, back there in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul's calling them out. And he's right to do so because these guys are teaching heresy, and Paul now describes them as two ways. Number one is drunk drivers. I mean, he says, these are those who have gone astray, verse 18. Well, that word gone astray, astokeo, is literally to swerve off course. These guys are swerving. They're wildly out of control on the road. They're like drunk drivers. Mishandling God's Word is like mishandling a two-ton car on Highway 20. Someone's going to end up hurt or dead. And it is that important Because you have seen the mishandling of the Word of God has actually driven people away from Jesus. The mishandling of the Word of God has caused those who desperately need Jesus to say, I don't want any of that. The mishandling of the Word of God has hurt tender-hearted Christian brothers and sisters. We better handle this thing right. But not only drunk drivers, he refers to what they do as causing disease to wounds. He uses this word here. Their talk will spread like gangrana in the Greek. Gangrene. Diseased wounds. When the blood supply is cut off to a limb or part of the body, the tissues in that part of the body begin to die. We have to have the blood flowing to keep it alive. And if it cut off, well then... You have two options really at that point. If the blood can't get there, you got amputation or death. Gangrene sets in, and that's the Greek word for it. And if you will flip just quickly over to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll understand this a little better. Disciples of Jesus, what is our blood supply? See, this is the key. It comes from Jesus Himself. And the Hebrew writer in chapter 9, verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, which God ordained in the temple, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thank God for the transfusion of Jesus' blood that flows through us and keeps us alive and prepares us for the resurrection to come. But you know what? Cut off the truth 
ignore the, the sound doctrine of the Word of God, sidestep the true teachings of Jesus Christ, and faith becomes diseased and gangrenous and ultimately dead. And that's why this is so important. Please don't think that I'm overstating this. Paul is writing these words from prison and he is concerned. We have got to keep this going, Timothy. Keep teaching the Word. Don't go off on tangents. Stick with the Word, Timothy. By the way, what was wrong with these drunk, driving, gangrenous teachers? What was the issue that Paul calls out? Verse 18. They've gone astray from the truth saying the resurrection has already taken place. What does that mean? Rapture's already happened. It's a spiritual thing. They were early Gnostics. Gnosticism is that faith that came in around the end of the first century that began to spiritualize everything. People still do it today. To take the rock-solid truth of Scripture, the fact that we have a resurrection coming. You understand that? A full bodily resurrection. How do you know? Because Jesus had a full bodily resurrection and He's the pattern. He's the first fruits. That's going to happen to us. You will be resurrected body, soul, and spirit. I know what you're thinking. We've been over this. This body? Trust me, you're going to love it. It's going to be souped up. It's going to rock. Full bodily resurrection. But it has not happened yet. It will happen. It's coming. And it's the rapture of the church. As we enter in, we experience our resurrection to be with Jesus. But these guys are coming along going, oh no, no, that's, that's, that's already happened. And now we're entering into this spiritual existence. And saying, the flesh doesn't matter, do whatever there, but it's a spiritual thing. And there are those today who still teach the rapture as a past tense event. It's heresy. I don't know if I've ever said it that definitely before, but things like preterism is heresy. And if you're a preterist, please come talk to me. Let's look at the Scriptures together. I believe that is heresy. Why? Because Paul says so. It's teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Saying things like, oh, it's just a, it's a spiritualized thing. I wonder if Paul wouldn't say, that's gangrenous. Teach the truth. Man, undermine the promise of the future resurrection and you will get faith sepsis. You will get gangrene, spiritual death. It matters what we teach. It matters how clear we are with the Word of God. It is not ours to change. It's not ours to update or to adapt to our current culture like is happening with the Church of Sweden right now. Who have determined now to take all the male references out. And just to refer to God generically as God, anywhere that refers to Him as He, take He out and just say God. We don't have that right. He wrote it. He brought it down. He inspired it, not me. Well, think about it this way. I'll just read this to you. At the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 18, John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Man, read those plagues. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. 
Some might say, okay, well that's just the book of Revelation. Don't add to or subtract from it. Well, Galatians 1.8 also says, if anyone tries to teach you a gospel other than what we've already taught you, let him be accursed. God has closed the door on further inspiration that is biblical doctrinal inspiration. The scriptures are done. And what he's given us is complete and it's whole. And when people come along like the Hymenaeus or Philetus of the world, indeed Satan himself, guess what? They don't get the last word. God does that. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who abstain, who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Okay, break that down. The firm foundation of God stands. What's the firm foundation of God? It's Jesus. It's not what, it's who. Paul's already told us this, 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the firm foundation. He is the rock upon whom our faith is built. The capstone, the precious cornerstone, the Bible refers to Him. The rock laid in Zion, the foundation stone. And that foundation of Jesus Christ stands and we are sealed by His Spirit with two absolute guarantees that Paul mentions right here. Number one, I love this, the Lord knows who are His. He knows. This is not a matter of, oh, let's go through the book. Who is this guy? I'm not sure if I know. Angels, does anyone know this guy here? I'll tell you what. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, God knows you. And you belong to Him. Whether you feel like it every day or not, The Lord knows who are His. And those who name Him as Lord, that is Jesus as Lord, abstain from wickedness. Do you ever worry if you belong to Him? I hope not. I hope not. The Lord knows those who are His. And if you have ever had that thought run through you, and maybe it's just like an OCD thing, it just rushes in, you go, you know, and then it rushes on out, you're like, okay, I'm all right, it's okay, it's good. Listen, if you ever fear for yourself, or you ever fear for or worry about others, don't. The Lord knows. I've had so many conversations with people who have had a loved one pass away. And they weren't sure whether or not the loved one knew Jesus. They think maybe, or they're not, you know, uncertain. And I say the same thing. It's not a cop-out. I just say, look, the Lord knows those who are His. He's a God of grace and mercy. And as much as you love this person, they are more his concern than yours. Parents, when your when your kids go off the deep end, and they all do, and we all have. <laughs> you know what? The Lord loves them more than you do. And he knows those who are his, and even when we don't see that, even when we look at him and go, oh, it doesn't look like they're belonging to him right now, the Lord knows those who are his. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Do you know the Lord? If you know the Lord tonight, He knows you too. And it's all built on relationship. And in that relationship, by the way, we can have a sense as to ourselves and our belonging to Him, and and as to those who really do belong to Him. Because not only does the Lord know those who are His, but those who name 
the name of the Lord, abstain from wickedness. That's kind of a pattern. They leave it behind. In fact, you could say, those who know the Lord and who are known by the Lord have, in a way, been raptured from wickedness. What do you mean? Well, I don't mean the rapture's already taken place. I'm not going down that heretical road. But the Greek word here, abstain, Bible students, it's aphistomai, which we talked about in 2 Thessalonians, which is the verb form of the noun harpazo. Rapture. To abstain, to be raptured, to leave it behind, to be carried up, caught off, or caught up, carried away. That's the attitude. The wickedness is back there behind. We have been lifted from it. We are carried away from it. There is an inherent power in simply naming Jesus Christ as Lord. Those who name Him as Lord, man, you're just caught away from wickedness. It kind of loses its taste. Have you ever found that? There are some things that you... You might even go back and sample it again and go, Ooh, that doesn't taste like, like I used to... Like I remember it tasting. I left that... It's like me with McDonald's, you know? It's no offense to McDonald's workers and the corporation itself, but seriously. I lived off that as a kid. These days, you smell a cheeseburger, I think they put something addictive in the smell. Because you smell it, you go, ooh, I think I'd like a, I'd like a McDonald's cheeseburger. And a bag of fries, and maybe even a shake. And the first bite, you go, oh yeah, I remember this. And you grab a fry, mm, sip a shake, yeah. Second bite, you go... By the third bite, you're trembling. (laughs) If you name the Lord, (laughs) even when you taste that old stuff, it just doesn't taste the same anymore. You, You lose the flavor. You don't want it. You've been caught away from it. Now, listen, though. It's not just those who speak the name of the Lord. Yeah, Jesus. It's those who name the name of the Lord. See, because Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What's the difference? There are those who name the name of the Lord and there are those who just speak it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve three, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means it's a heart issue. You can speak the words, but to name the name is only something you can do by faith and by the Spirit of God. Have you named Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you have, then you not only will abstain from wickedness, but you are called to abstain from wickedness. That's not our thing anymore. Now, we have seen food servers, focused soldiers, fair-minded athletes. We've seen faithful farmers, fastidious workers. i got to add one more. This is an interesting one. Number six, fine china. Fine china, verse 20. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Porcelain can have very different uses in a home. (laughs) 
some of you are getting a little flushed here. <laughs> Sorry, I knew that Deb couldn't handle that one. Um, try and keep a lid on it if we can. <laughs> Porcelain in the bathroom is very different than porcelain in the kitchen cabinet. If I had you over to my house and we began eating dinner and you're looking at the china on the table, you're saying, well, that's really nice. And I say, well, yeah, we recycled our toilet for that. (laughs) That'd be the last meal you had in my house. I'm sure of it. But you know what? It's the same substance from the bathroom to the kitchen, even to the Christmas tree. We have on our Christmas tree, for the last... 17 years, every year I've gotten Cheryl a Linux ornament. There are these fine china, little porcelain ornament snowmen, and you know, just little characters and different things, and, and they're really beautiful. But these things are porcelain, and so is our toilet. Some are honorable in use, beautiful to look at, nice to eat off of the other one you don't want to eat near. That's what Paul is, literally, this is what he's saying. And no matter how dishonorable, listen, no matter how dishonorable your usage was in the past, Jesus has this amazing ability to take that which was stinky and dishonorable and actually make it honorable enough to serve on the table. Fine china. That's what's remarkable here is we go from, and and forgive the crudeness, but we go from being toilets to being fine china. We do. That's, that's the change that's happened. Dead vessels to being these beautiful living things. And Jesus did that. And He doesn't just recycle the material and just scrub it good and then put it on the table. We are remade through and through after the image of, of Jesus Himself. And it's remarkable that we can actually become the finest China. Because Romans 8.28 We know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And on down in that same section, ultimately He refers to us as those who are glorified. Wow. So verse 22, after we realize we're fine China. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And there are three key words right there in verse 22 for keeping fine china clean. What are they? From, to, and with. Or, or from, pursue, and with. Flee from youthful lusts. He doesn't say flee from sin. He says flee from youthful lust. Uh, flee from the lure, from the desire. That's a step before you even get to the sin. Don't wait till you're right up against it. Flee it. When you, when you have that little sense in your heart that, oh, maybe I will have a bite of that McDonald's cheeseburger. Don't go there! <laughs> Bad example. But you know what I'm saying? If you even have an inkling toward a sin behavior, that's the lust. Flee it. Run away. Pull a Joseph. A great example of a man of God who did not even allow himself to have a moment of lustful thinking, but when Potiphar's wife goes after him, he flees. He runs the other direction. It's interesting, Paul uses this phrase in Corinthians, he says, flee sexual immorality. Here, flee youthful lust. He's talking to a young man, Timothy, a young pastor, and he's saying, man, if you start to feel it, get out. Flee, that is, run from. And... Don't just run away from, but run to. 
That is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You're not going to run away and then just kind of run wild aimlessly. We have a direction to run to, which is the things of God. But he also says this, and sometimes we miss this, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That is run from, run to, and run with. Don't run the race alone. Don't go off by yourself. You are not a single mismatched plate. You know, yeah, I've been made fine China, but I don't match up with anybody. Wrong. You are in a perfect set called the church. And we are to be together on this table. You are fine China. You could say we're in the Koinonia cabinet in the house of God. We are in fellowship and we do this together. And we see each other through. Well, how do we do that? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Disciples of His, find China all together. Verse 23, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant, and here it is again, doulos, the slave. That lowest form of servant. The Lord's bondservant must not Strive, or your Bible may say, be quarrelsome. The Lord's bondservant, we come right back around it. All of this teaching about the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, we are not to do the opposite, which is to be angry wranglers, striving, arguing, contentious. No. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. And I don't see any caveats in that. All except that loser. No, we must be kind to all. Note this, able to teach. Patient when wronged. And with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Someone comes against you, you don't fight back. You gently correct. How do I do that? Show them the Word. I understand you feel this way, but... Tell me what that says. Explain to me, I mean, is that what you're telling me? Go to the Word, teach the Word, know the Word well enough that you can be gentle in correction. Now note this, he doesn't say that the Lord's pastor must not be quarrelsome, kind, able to teach, patient with wrong, when wrong. He doesn't say the Lord's elders or the Lord's deacons. He says the Lord's slaves. That's the disciple. The disciple is simply the slave, the bondservant of the Lord. And note this, all of the above above applies. Which means every one of us sitting in here tonight, and those who are not, every one of us are called to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. This is for everyone. Why is it so important? What's the Lord's agenda? Verse 25 continuing. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses. Now get this. Repentance is first. Coming to their senses is second. It's not the other way around. We don't come to our senses, recognize what was lacking in our lives, and then repent. We repent first. Because until a person turns to God, we can't come to our senses. It's only by turning to God 
That we suddenly that the veil is lifted, 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. But if you don't turn to the Lord, the veil's stuck. You will not come to your senses. I'm saying this to you all. You have come to your senses. But I'm saying this to remind you once again. Don't expect the unrepentant person. Don't expect them to share your morals. Don't expect them to understand or walk in these values. Don't even judge them for it. So this, this is tough. There is so much wrong and immorality and sin in the world. I can't judge that. God does. The Spirit does. But I can't because these are people, these are people who don't even realize how senseless they are. I didn't. It's so amazing to me when a person does turn to the Lord, the the veil's taken away, and then freedom. Then there's escape. Then, as Paul says, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Why is Paul so bent on Timothy teaching the word? I mean, honestly, after all the years of going through the Bible together, I know, I'm fully aware of how many times I've said, teach the word. We've got to teach the Word. We've got to be in the Word. You know, we really need to be about the Word of God. It's all the Word of God. Hey, you know what you should know? Know the Word. The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. I know that. I know that it's, it's like this broken record going round and round. Why is Paul saying this now? The Word again? Entrusting these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also? Why? Because he sees a world in captivity. And he sees, note this, a church in heresy. And there is nothing else that will rescue. There's nothing else that will bring the escape. Both the world in captivity and the church in heresy has prisoners who have been ensnared by the devil and they either they don't know they're being held at all or they know but they see no way out. So they have just given up and just figured this is just the life I have to live. How do we help them come to the escape? It's the Word of God. We bring them right back to the Word again and again. Remember this, Jesus came, He said, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And that's why we must keep teaching this Word. Verse 1 of chapter 3, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And we'll pick that up next week. Father, would you just impress upon our fellowship the need for us all, every last person, to be kind, to be gentle in correcting those who are opposed, and Father, to be able to teach. Not praying that you make us a fellowship of Bible scholars, but certainly, Father, a fellowship of Bible servants. People who know this word well enough to open it and share it. I pray that what we study together and share in here will simply um, be nourishment for that and encouragement. It will be a building up that causes us to, to want to feed more. You know, when I have a good meal, Father, I I want it again. And I pray the same for the word that we have shared together tonight. 
Make us disciples who are bound to Your Word, led by Your Spirit, and Father, filled with grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.